Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Addictive Pod. Today, I am so excited for this episode. It's a really new episode. For the first time, I'm not speaking to an alcoholic or an addict. I'm going to be speaking to the daughter of an alcoholic. My guest today grew up with an alcoholic father, and her life was forever impacted by this experience, watching her father eventually succumb to the illness and being with him in some of the last moments of his life. Um, even if you're not an emotional person, typically, I think this podcast, I think this episode will get to you. It was very intense, very vulnerable story. So without further ado, she is a TEDx speaker, an advocate for children of alcoholics and for alcohol recovery, the host of the Children of Alcoholics podcast, Sarah Drage. Sarah, welcome to the Addictive Pod. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm really excited to to have you on the show and talk to you. We've been going back and forth a while now, so I'm glad it we worked it out yeah, and we're, we're here. Finally, finally got there. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm really excited to talk to you. I think I've had, um, I've, I must have had over 40 or 50 alcoholics, recovered alcoholics on the show. And a lot of um, listeners of the show are recovering alcoholics. But I've never interviewed um, a, a a member of the family of somebody with alcoholism, and I and I think a lot of the listeners are in that position. So I'm excited to share your story, and hopefully people can um, relate to it and better understand how this um, how this disease affects everybody, not just the not just the alcoholic. Yeah, it it really does. It does, and I suppose I didn't really appreciate that at the time as well. I didn't realize how much I was impacted. Um, but yeah, it's really important to get those different perspectives, but it's also important to say that when I talk about my perspective, I don't want to be perpetuating any feelings of guilt Mm. on anyone because I think it's really important to just remember that I think everyone was affected by an illness, um, that nobody really understood Mm. or we still, we're still learning about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important. So I always talk about this perspective and my perspective and I and I hate I hate making people feel guilty or that um I don't like you know what I mean I don't want yeah, people to feel yeah. bad about that perception so but it does have an equal impact equally it, it equally impacts everybody that's involved the drinker and those that are are watching mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when did you first watch that when did you first notice that your dad um was was drinking a lot or that he might have uh, that he may have an illness how old were you I always knew my dad to have a bottle or a glass in his hand with some kind of alcoholic beverage um, and that was from a little girl um, I can't ever remember my dad not drinking hmm. when I realized it was a problem I was probably um, in my teens um, and I used to piece two and two together then. His mood changes, his mannerisms, his behaviours became a lot more noticeable as I was a teenager. And as I started mixing with friends and um, going to their houses and looking at what a normal family dynamic was like, I then realised that, well, actually, my dad's not like this. And mm. I used to, I always remember saying, I just want my dad to be normal. And I mean, what's normal, right? Like, I, I hate that. I hate that terminology, normal, right. but what I meant, and I didn't really understand how to articulate it at the time because I was so young. 
I actually wanted my dad to be sober. I just didn't realize what mm. that meant at the time because we didn't realize that he was an alcoholic. Um, and I suppose my dad's denial in his drinking um, trickled down into us. We were in denial that there was an issue. And we always second guessed and doubted ourselves. So whenever I did challenge my dad about his drinking or whenever I did think, oh, actually, maybe he could be an alcoholic, it would always get um, brushed under the carpet or kind of brushed off. By him or would... by uh, like yeah, other people my... in the family? A bit of both. I suppose my dad would laugh at it. And he was his common, his common reply to that was, if I wanted to stop drinking, I could stop drinking. I could mm. stop tomorrow if I wanted to. I just don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was almost like that, maybe that subconscious gaslighting that I don't think he intended to gaslight us. I just think he believed himself. I think he believed himself. I think he believed it wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the mood swings. What was that like growing up oh, to sort of depend on how much he had been drinking or whether he was sobering up at a certain point or what was that like? They were erratic. They were all over the place. Um, they were the kind and I could always tell so it was event dependent so depending on if we had a special occasion that was coming up if there was going to be a lot of people around he didn't like being around people I think he might have had social anxiety looking back Mm. on it um Christmases birthdays they'd be a trigger for my dad to drink more so I dreaded those I never knew what mood I was coming home to. And as I got older, I used to stay out on purpose and I'd ring my mum before I came home. And the common question was, what mood is dad in today? Mm -hmm. He was never violent. He was never violent, but he made it a very difficult atmosphere. The atmosphere was toxic. It was um, not passive aggressive. It was like an aggressive tone to his voice. The look in his eyes, just it was a sinister look in his eyes. His face was bloated. Um, he was red. He was glazed or he was passed out on the sofa with the curtains drawn. Mm. So it wasn't a nice environment to be around. And I never wanted to risk bring anybody, bringing anybody around randomly because I didn't want them to walk in and see what he was like. Um, my dad was, he weren't always like that. And that's what was so difficult. As, as a young child, I remember a very different side to my dad. Mm. Um, my dad was actually very sensitive. Um, he, was, he was highly sensitive, highly sensitive. He would cry at anything. He, he'd watch anything emotional on telly. And he'd be the first one to be crying. He'd be crying oh. at anything that we did as like my sisters and I, if we did anything like a school production or a play or sports day or we, we did anything special he'd have tears in his eyes his eyes he was so proud and um, but I, and I always say now that I've never actually met a narcissistic alcoholic mm. every alcoholic I've ever met has been an empath and my dad was an empath and I, I, I'm saying that because he was so plagued with anxiety depression mm. post-traumatic stress disorder that was never treated he was taught that having a mental illness was a weakness and the only thing that he knew to do to drown out that noise and that pain was to drink. And my dad right. went through something incredibly traumatic. Um, and he drank. He used to say to me, I drink to forget. Yeah. I drink to forget. Even then, that wasn't a red flag. Even then, I thought, oh, he's not an alcoholic. Um, he could stop if he wanted to. Maybe I'm being dramatic. Mm. Maybe I'm overthinking things. 
And because it was so up and down, um, one minute he was fine, the next he wasn't. I never knew. I never knew what to expect with him, um, which made me question my own reality. I always questioned my own reality. How, how did it affect your own mood regulation when you're growing up with someone who has no regulation, right? It's, you come home, you don't know what to expect. You're kind of walking on eggshells. How does it affect your own mood? I'm still affected right now. Yeah. Um, I would say that I developed anxiety because of it. And I was diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder when my dad was alive. Mm. Didn't realize it at the time, but it only came out when I only recognized that I had anxiety when I moved into my own home, married, um, had my own children. And all of a sudden my life was stable and I'm, I'm living in this perfect family dynamic and it didn't feel right to me. It felt mm. like something was going to come along and break it or ruin it. It felt like it weren't my reality. And all of a sudden I had no reason to be anxious anymore. I'm mm. in, I'm in a comfortable wow. environment and then that anxiety peaked and I didn't know where it was coming from. Yeah. And I focused all of that anxiety on my health. Um, I was worried about my dad's drinking, even though I weren't living with him at the time. I still worried about him. My mum had left him at that point and I absolutely don't blame her one mm. bit. And then my dad's drinking really kind of took a turn for its worse then. Um, so I always used to worry about him, even as a 25, 26, 27 year old living on my own with my own family. Um, but I would decompartmentalize, or I'd not decompartmentalize, I'd compartmentalize that worry and allocate myself certain times to worry about him. But all that did was manifest anxiety, health anxiety, mm, because mm. I couldn't control my dad's drinking. I could control my own health. I couldn't control my dad's. Um, and the way I describe it to people now, the, like, the best analogy that I can use to describe when you watch somebody you deeply care about and you love. And I mean, I said earlier on that my dad was such an empath and such mm, a sensitive mm. person. I loved him. Like I, He would do anything for us. And I know how much he loved us. He absolutely adored his family. Um, and you do have that love for them there. So it made, in a way, it made it harder. It made it harder for me to walk away. Like I almost wished sometimes that he was a horrible person because if he was a horrible person, it would have person, been easier that, to just completely cut ties. Yeah, absolutely. But there was always that conflict there. That mm. There was that internal conflict of this isn't him. This isn't my dad, but this is what the situation I confronted with. And we didn't really understand it. We didn't know how to help him. But the, the analogy that I use was imagine watching somebody you love drown mm. and you're not able to get in and pull them out. You've just got to watch it mm -hmm. and you watch and you wait for the inevitable to happen. That's what it was like in the last couple of years of my dad's life. I was 25, 26, wait, I was 27 when he died. Mm. And a couple, couple of years leading up to his death felt like that. It felt like watching somebody you love so much. They were drowning in front of me and I couldn't do anything. I had no control, no help, no support. And all I could do was just watch the inevitable happen. And mm. it did, it happened. It, that happened and there was nothing I could do about it and it left so many different feelings of um, just so many conflicting feelings mm. so many emotions um, like I talk about guilt I talk about um, the heartbreak anger the shame the shame of it because actually 
we were all living in this bubble of shame and mm. and we were allowing a stigma to stop us from asking for help and i felt this incredible sense of disloyalty to talk about any to talk about him to anybody because i knew how much he didn't want to talk about it so i felt like if i was to speak to anybody and ask for help then that would be a disloyalty and he'd be mm. angry with me Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to. And then the other part of me, like I said earlier on, I always used to question my own reality. There was part of me that thought, oh, maybe I'm being dramatic. Right, right. Maybe I am being dramatic and maybe it's not as bad as I think. Um, but my dad was physically dependent on alcohol. He was physically dependent on it. He needed it like we need water to survive. Mm. And I didn't understand when he was alive that it, withdrawal from alcohol was deadly. I used to pour it's one it of the most dangerous. It's more dangerous than basically any drug. It's unbelievable. It, it's categorized as the most dangerous drug in the UK. It comes yeah. above crack and heroin. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I used to pour it down the sink. I thought I would be helping him. I thought if I pour it down the sink, you won't have anything. And little did I know at the time that he'd just go and get more. I couldn't control mm-hmm. that situation. And two, I was he just needed spe- it at that time. Yeah, he did. He needed it because he would get the shakes. He would, um, he'd be sick. He would um, zone out. He, he, he just he needed it like we need water, but yeah. we were so frightened to ask for that help. Um, there did come a point though where we did ask for the help, and we did manage to get him admitted into some kind of detox facility, and he was sober for a good year. And I got my dad back. That dad wow. that I remembered as a young child, we got him back. And we assumed, oh, he's not an alcoholic anymore because he stopped drinking. We didn't follow it up with any psychological support. My dad didn't follow it up with any psychological support. My sister and I, or both my sisters and me, we, we would really like protect him and look after him. And it was almost like the unspoken family secret then. It's done now. Don't talk about it. Mm. He's not an alcoholic anymore. Um, mm. But my granddad died in March 2017, my dad's dad, and it triggered a reaction of events in my dad, and he relapsed. Um, but this time, he relapsed um, with vodka. Before, it used to be weaker alcohol. Mm-hmm. This time, it was vodka, and he was drinking a litre a day that we know of. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, um, and his body just couldn't take it anymore. And it was, I've never, ever, I can't describe the frustration. The, the frustration when he relapsed, I said some horrendous things to him. Mm. I was awful to him. I was so angry. I swore at him. I told him I hated him. I told him he'd be better off dead. I felt awful for that. And I had to live with that guilt. And I still live with that guilt. And I, it took a lot of therapy for me to come to terms with, I was also struggling as well and I was reacting Mm. out of anger and that anger was an emotion and that emotion was sadness. Mm -hmm. I was sad that he had relapsed and I was sad that I knew what was coming. I think I knew deep down inside, I knew what was coming. I knew that he couldn't sustain that. Um, And he was also very stubborn, didn't want to get the help. Um, He thought that he'd have another detox and he wouldn't need any kind of psychological support to follow it up he just thought that he'd get the detox and he would do it himself again but um it wasn't it just wasn't it's not how it works and I think we all we all know that now but at the time you just don't um but it was really it was really tough those last few weeks were 
horrendously tough. Did your, um, had your mother left him before the detox or was this after in this like very serious portion of the, of the illness? Um, it was before the detox. Okay. Okay. And I don't have any blame towards my mum. I think mm-hmm. if, if anything, I think I have a lot of empathy towards a partner in that situation, especially when that partner has a child or children with the alcoholic. I remember as a teenager, I used to scream and shout at my mum and say, just leave him. Why mm. can't you just leave him? Look what it's doing mm. to us. Um, and my mum would always say, but this isn't your dad. She was so conflicted. And I think my mum knew that if she would have left him sooner, then he probably would have died sooner. And then she would have had to then live with that guilt. Mm. And we would have probably blamed as young teenagers, we would have probably put that on my mum. Um, so my mum was really caught between a rock and a hard place and left the family home when all of her girls were old enough and moved out. Um, oh, and I, I don't I blame imagine. her for that. I can't imagine, yeah. It's tough. It was really tough. Um, and in, in a way, my dad needed to stop being enabled. Yeah, yeah. She was enabling my dad when she was that, with him. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, do you make sense of it? Um I guess what I would ask is what would you say to someone living with an alcoholic who's trying year after year to support them and be with them and um, and they're not getting help and they feel that drain on their own energy and on their own mental health and they're considering leaving, but they have that guilt. What would you, how would you counsel someone like that? I get asked this question a lot and I, and I can never answer it with advice. I, I'm not a clinician. I, I'm not a professional in this area. But what I will say is that there's no guilt or shame in protecting your own energy. Mm. And I actually think I've spoken to a lot of people who walked away and I have a lot of admiration for them. Um, and I think it's a very brave thing to do. I think it's a very difficult thing to do. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I knew that I needed to do that. I needed to do that for my own mental health um but i couldn't do it but it doesn't mean that i don't um admire people that can do that i think it's very difficult i think every situation is unique but i i think as a society we're almost taught that thinking about ourselves is selfish when actually it's Mm. not i think the best thing in these situations we could do is look after ourselves and i don't know how that looks for most people like for some people it could be staying and maybe doing things differently or for some it could be leaving. Okay, right. But I think how can we help somebody and support somebody when we're struggling ourselves? Because yeah. I, I struggled. I developed anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder, health anxiety when my dad was alive because of my dad's drinking. Um, and I still couldn't cut him off. Mm-hmm. And in a way, part of me thinks maybe my life would have been a lot more simpler had I had I done that. Um, but it's such a hard situation. And this is what makes it such, it's so unique for everyone. Mm-hmm. So I've met so many people that are affected by a loved one's drinking. And so many people might say to me, um, how do you have so much empathy for your dad? And like my alcoholic parent or my alcoholic partner was abusive or they were this or they were that. And so many people have different ways of, managing the situation Um, and I think it's like a fingerprint I think for all of us it's so unique it's such Mm. a different it's so nuanced it's such a nuanced subject that 
it's very difficult to advise on. Um, all I can say from the child's perspective, it's actually really damaging living in that environment for a child. Yeah. Um, it, and it was damaging for me. And I was one of the lucky ones that managed to recover and come out a different person and a stronger person. But there's people that I know that have been so affected by it that they followed suit. They, or, they turned to drinking or to yeah, drugs as well. Yeah. Because yeah. that's all you've been familiar with. You've, you've seen somebody your entire life cope with stress and manage their stress by putting mm -hmm. something in, inside their body. And that becomes learnt behaviour, doesn't it? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe there's, there's some research to say that it's hereditary. Who knows? But I think there is that level there of learnt behaviour for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or the other extreme would be a complete aversion to substances and sort of a hyper control and, and hyper yeah. um, codependency and other issues. I mean, it's just... It's it's it can be so damaging growing up in an it, environment it, like that. Yeah. It's really really uh, unhealthy. Yeah, it really can. It really can. Yeah. Mm. So you stayed and you continued to like in that in that period of time before detox and then after detox. What was your level of uh, contact with your father at the time, and how were you um, supporting him or trying to support him? And and what was that experience like? It would be checking in daily conversations on the phone, going to his house, trying to maintain that relationship and have him around as a grandfather. Um, I do remember forcing him, we actually forced him into detox. It wasn't a decision he made on his own. And we forced him by cutting contact with him. We managed mm -hmm. three months. And when I say cut contact, I still checked in that he weren't dead. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would still ring in. Um, and it was after that three months that he was crying. He was in such a bad way. And he said to me, everything, sorry, he said, um, everything that I have been through is insignificant compared to losing my girls. So mm -hmm. I do any, I'll do anything you want me to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought at the time, this is amazing. Like he's going to get better. He's going to recover. But we forced him into it. We backed him into a corner and threatened. I knew that we were our dad's weakness. I knew how much mm. he loved his girls. And I knew that if we removed ourselves, it would force him into submission and he would he would go and um, see somebody. And it did for some time. And we did get our dad back, but it didn't, he, he didn't do it for himself. He did it mm. for us. And that was the crew, that was the key element to his recovery. He did it for us. He didn't do it for himself. My dad was very lost in his addiction. Um, he was so lost within himself. He lost his identity. He lost everything. The, the man he was, it, it was all, it was all gone. And he said that to me. He said that this world isn't the world I remember. And it was heartbreaking. It was so heartbreaking. But he didn't get sober for those twelve months for, for himself. He did it for us. Um, mm. And that's how I tried. I've helped him by forcing him. I thought I was helping him. And in a way I don't regret it because I got him back for 12 months and I'll be eternally grateful for having my normal dad back. And I feel like that was precious time we had with him. Mm. Um, but it was like a constant battleground all the time. It was a mm. constant same argument. Arguing with somebody who's drunk is so unbelievably frustrating. I can't mm. put into words how difficult it is to talk to somebody or have a conversation with them when they're drunk. It was an argument is what it was mm -hmm. all the time. And then I tried the tough love and I tried the loving and I tried 
all these different approaches, but I'm trying to get through to somebody who's repeating himself all the time, who can't remember what he's saying, doesn't know what he's saying. Um, yeah. And it was just constant all the time. It, it was, I knew that if my dad didn't make drastic changes, I knew the outcome would be mm. um, what it was. I didn't want to mm. believe it, but part of me knew that that would happen. Can you tell me about those last uh, few months or few weeks and, and what that whole um, what that whole, whole ordeal was like? I mean, it sounds like his when he switched to vodka, it was just much more extreme, much more dangerous. And then um, he eventually um, started to have organ failure or, or what, what happened yeah, there? Yeah, of course. So um, it was... It was probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to go through my entire life. Mm. The disappointment that he'd relapsed, the frustration, the anger, the guilt. Um, I remember getting a phone call. This time, it felt different this time around, though. I remember it distinctly feeling different. There was like a gut instinct or this knowing within me that knew this time was different. Because what you've got to remember is we'd always been in this situation. We'd always mm. had so many times where, oh, here we go again, and he'll sober up, and next week he'll tell us everything will be different. And it was just a cycle of broken promises for years and years and years. So we thought we were living on borrowed time, but we didn't think that we were living on borrowed time. We thought, oh, here we go, here we go again. So I got a phone call from him, and he was in a bad way. He was crying, and he was, he, my dad was a very proud man. He he came from the north of England. It's very um, proud, um, typical, um, like that epitome of men, the men don't talk about their emotions and right, the tough right. man kind of. Like, that's what it was where my dad yeah. was from. So my dad weren't going to start talking about his mental health, or he certainly was never going to tell us about any physical symptoms that he was getting. I never ever knew my dad to share anything about his health. He saw it as a weakness. So on this particular day, he rung me and told me that he'd been coughing up blood and that he was seeing his dad. And I thought like he was wow. hallucinating. I thought he was hallucinating. I was very scientifically minded before my dad died. Um, and who knows? I know they talk about all kinds of spiritual things about loved ones come to visit you when you're dying. And maybe that's what was happening. Maybe he was having deathbed visions um but he could see my my granddad and he was coughing up blood and he was scared I could hear he was scared so I said right I'm coming up to see you and I went to see him and I I got to his house and he was curled up in bed shaking and there was a tinge of yellow to him and I said right I'm gonna call an ambulance because I think you might have liver failure mm-hmm. and in that moment he relinquished that parental control over me like all of these years, I felt like I was the adult. I was the one looking after him. I was the parent. And all of a sudden, he snapped that back. He swore at me. He shouted at me. He said to me that I was being dramatic. And in that moment, he told me, I will not get in an ambulance. If you call an ambulance, I'm not going to the hospital. I have done this to myself. I will get out of this myself. I do not want to waste the doctor's time when there's people at the hospital that need treatment more than I do. Oh my God. So at that point I walked away. I said, well, I can't watch you do this to yourself. 
and I walked mm. away. My God, that took so much therapy to get mm. over the guilt. I, I still to this day think what would have happened if I would have just rung the ambulance and not waited? Maybe he might have still been alive. Um, who knows? But that's something that I had to live with. I was so angry. Mm. I walked out and I left him and, and I got a phone call three days later from my sister um, on my way to work and she said you need to get to the hospital dad's in a bad way and I got there I was absolutely petrified and and in that moment she said that I had this and again like I weren't a spiritual person at the time I really weren't I was I had a bachelor of science I have a bachelor of science degree very science-minded mm-hmm but before I got that phone call, I had this epiphany. I think that's what you call them, where I had this vision that, and I hadn't a clue by this at this point. By the way, I didn't. The, the thought that my dad was going to die hadn't really, apart from seeing him in the way he was, I didn't believe that he would mm. die, mm-hmm. or I didn't believe that he was in any imminent danger. And you do have that kind of naive view that you know, if alcohol was that dangerous, they wouldn't have it visible and easily accessible and glamorized everywhere. Oh, so it can't, it can't be that bad. So you have that yeah. like ingrained like kind of viewpoint about it. So I'm driving to um, to work, and I all of a sudden get this vision that I'm reading out my dad's eulogy at his oh, funeral. No. That happened, by the way. That happened. I read his eulogy. And 10 minutes after I had that vision, I got my phone call from my sister. So I couldn't drive at that point. My whole body went into like some kind of spasm. So I got my husband and we drove up to the hospital and he was sat upright in a wheelchair. And I thought, oh, thank God, he's not unconscious. He's fine. He's fine. But on closer look, he looked different this time. It was almost like it had gone. He weren't drunk. He weren't drunk. But he went there either. Mm. It was like his, I think they call it wet, wet, um, wet brain. Wet brain. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that's what he had because he didn't recognize me. And um, me and my sisters were there and he looked at us like with real blank expression. And he'd oh have moments God. like in and out. And he looked at me and he was like, where are my girls? I need to see my girls. I need to mm. see if my girls are okay. I'm like, dad, it's me. Like we're here. And he just looked at us like he didn't know who we were. Um, mm. And in that moment, we were getting so many looks from people because when you have to check somebody into A&E in the UK, um, you do it in an open space. So when you tell the receptionist, oh, I'm here because you, there's no private space you go to, you say it. I mean, my dad's drank too much when he's an alcoholic. So you, you get tuts, you get eyeball rolls, you get people shaking their heads almost like, He's a waste of time. He's he's a burden to the system. He's mm, he's taking up mm-hmm. somebody else's slot. Um, so you're contending with all of that, and then obviously my dad has got no function over himself. Um, and again, we didn't realise the severity of it, but he kept getting moved from room to room when we were in hospital, and it was very quick, very fast paced. It was very quick. He get he gets moved into a ward, and then he gets moved into majors. And then he goes from majors and he goes into resource. And all of a sudden in resource, we're surrounded by three consultants. (laughs) Like, you know, now I know now that when you've got a consultant in the room with you, then it's serious. Like there's, Mm. there's something seriously wrong. But at the time I'm so like blase about the whole situation. And I've got these consultants with x-rays of my dad's lungs, which are filled with fluid. And my dad's bleeding internally. And 
he's partially conscious he's in and out of consciousness and they're telling me um all of the stuff that's wrong with him it still weren't computing um what was going on and again i had this feeling i walked out of his ward and i had this feeling that he weren't going to be in my life i didn't know what that meant but i just had this feeling in my gut they told us he'd make a recovery they said oh we'll give him five five days in a ward we'll give him some fluids we'll give him the medication to wean off the alcohol and then we'll get him some proper help and i thought this is going to really shock him this is a good thing this will be a good thing to happen to him because he's going to he's going to come round and it's going to be he's going to be reborn oh, and he's wow. going to understand that he can't keep doing this anymore yeah last thing he said to me he come back for a split second recognized me and he took his mask off and he went i love you Hmm. And I, I was like, I love you, Dad. I'll see you tomorrow. And I, I left. Um, he got moved again. And at this point, they moved him into another ward. And then at midnight, we got a phone call to say that he'd been moved into intensive care and he'd been put on dialysis. Um, and his body was just filling with fluid so quickly. Hmm. It, even they couldn't keep up with the amount of fluid that he was um, producing. So I got into intensive care the next day. And as I entered intensive care there was a load of doctors the curtains were closed around him and i was with my mum and my mum was amazing by the way at this point my mum um came back like was that she she kind of took over she kind of took that role of he's the father of my children i love him mm. um and she was his next of kin still and she got a phone call and they said um and we knew we just looked at each other we knew something was wrong and then we had his doctor came out and he looked like he he looked like he'd been on the tools for the day he looked like absolutely exhausted and this doctor mm. came out and he just said those words that you don't ever want to hear when you're in a hospital with a loved one and he said we need to have a talk and you could just see how defeated he looked and he started reading off all of this stuff that was wrong with my dad and i stopped in midway and i just said um is my dad going to survive this? And he looked at me and he just said, your dad has a 15% chance of surviving. That's if he doesn't die when I put him into a life support machine or onto a life support machine. Mm. At that point I got up and walked out. I said, I can't listen to you anymore. And it really kicked in. And I, yeah, I went yeah. into a state of shock because then I went to see my dad and he was unconscious and he was breathing shallow um he's in weird breathing and i remember just standing over him begging him to fight and there was a part of me inside that felt selfish for asking him to fight and for asking mm. him to stick around because i thought you've been through so much with this addiction and i didn't realize just how bad it was when you were when when we were going through it you become so complacent as a family you think you've got all of these chances all the time and i remember begging him and saying please 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 dad come on don't leave us and then there was a part of me that thought oh do you know what maybe this is kind of you maybe you want this maybe you're you're not going to be mm. suffering anymore and um if he did survive what did that mean because he was so ill so ill um and the wet brain and all of that stuff what did that mean for him and how severely impacted would he be if he did survive well, they put him onto a life support machine and I left the hospital 
couldn't stay. I just couldn't be around him. Uh, I, I couldn't watch. And it was my husband that came to get me. Um, and he told me that they were going to switch him off and they needed they needed one of us there. Um, oh. And I went and they were, I didn't realise at the time, but they were waiting on me to give permission to mm. switch him off. Um, and I had one sister that was like, don't, please give him longer, please give him longer. And then I remember having a conversation with my dad when, um, not long before he died, actually, and he made me swear to him that I'd never, I'd never risk him being um, in a, he never wanted to have any kind of loss of any function. And he made me mm. say, we had, can't even remember how we got into a conversation, but he made me promise that I'd switch him off. Don't ever prolong it. And maybe part of me now wonders whether he knew this was coming, whether he knew something was wrong. Mm. But I remember having a conversation and he said to me, you promise me, won't you? You promise me you'll you'll turn me off. And I laughed it off and I said, oh, don't be so silly. That that won't happen for years yet. It was only six months later that I was faced with that situation. Um, And I I did it. I I said to them how is there any kind of chance he could recover from this? And they were like, no, absolutely not. And if by some miracle he Mm. did, then he wouldn't be your dad. He wouldn't be your normal. He'd probably need full-time care. And I just said at that point, turn him off, switch him off. Don't, why are we prolonging it? Just like, if he, if he's, if he can feel anything right now and he's in pain, just turn him off. And I remember feeling at such it was so painful. It was so, so painful. It felt like, it felt like I'd been hit by a bus. That's the only way I can describe it. Like, I don't know what that feels like, mm. but the pain through my mm. body, it felt like I'd had a massive blow. Like my, every part of me hurt, physically hurt, emotionally hurt, but it physically hurt. It was painful. I always remember that feeling of pain that just went through my entire body. I was in so much pain physical pain in that situation and I remember thinking I don't want to get to this point I don't want to end up like my dad I've got two ways I can go I end up going down that road and I end up being like my dad because I'm very much my dad's daughter and at that point I hadn't really gotten any proper help for my mental health and I'd I'd, um, had thoughts about not wanting to be around anymore didn't ever act on it but I know those thoughts aren't, they're not good if I got to that, like Mm. getting to that point. Um, And I knew that I didn't want my children to go through what I was having to go through at that point. Um, So I decided that I would take a lesson from it. And to this day, I attribute the person I've become to my dad. I don't Mm. think that I'd be the person I am now without going through that experience. Mm. And people will ask me sometimes, would you change anything? Um, and if I'm being really brutally honest, I don't think I would. And that sounds, obviously mm. I'd love my dad to have not been an alcoholic and for us to have had a normal upbringing and a happy, happy upbringing. But at the same time, I am a very open-minded, very empowered, resilient um person now I weren't when he was alive I was the shell of the person I am now and I've done so much in his memory 
and created a legacy in my dad's memory. Um, I strongly believe stigma held us back. I think, and mm-hmm. my TED talk was inspired by that. So I, I did a TED talk about um, the, the title of it was um, alcoholism, the deadly truth about its stigma. Before, before we get into that, can I just say like, I'm really touched by your story and I, I just want to thank you so much for having the, um, the courage to come on and share your story. And I know you've done it before and you've done the Ted talk and everything, but really like from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And, um, the love you have for your father is just beautiful and, um, it's, uh, and the pain that you had to go through is like, I, I just can't imagine um, you're, you're an incredibly strong person and, and I'm grateful just to, just to hear this and hear that, um, that you went through this and grew from it as opposed to being destroyed by it. Right. Um, it, it could destroy a lot of people going through something like that. Like it comes with so many different emotions though, right? Like yeah. I, I think yeah. I, I contributed to a chapter in a book, a good friend of mine, I don't you might have heard of him. He, he's a sobriety influencer in the UK. He's called Sober Dave. And he wrote a book and he, he wanted a chapter in there about children of alcoholics. And I remember writing it and I remember listing 13 different emotions that I had. And one of them on there was, um, and it was the one that floored me the most, was, was relief. Mm. Relief when he died. Um, and there was two reasons. I was relieved that I didn't have to worry anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was relieved that he weren't suffering. Um, and it was almost like a big weight had been lifted and I could get on with my life and I didn't have to worry about him. and I didn't have to check my phone through the night, keeping it on, making sure that I weren't going to get a phone call or every time I heard a blue light emergency service vehicle drive past, I didn't think it was for my dad. Uh, so yeah. it was that kind of relief. And that killed me that day. Like, God, that made me feel so guilty. So much guilt for feeling that relief. And then the anger, angry with him for relapsing, angry with people for saying horrible derogatory stuff about him, angry with myself Mm. for saying horrible derogatory stuff about him, angry with myself for telling him to snap out of it and to get a grip and to stop being so weak, angry for not learning more when he was alive, heartbroken, um, anxious, just all these kind of emotions, shame, the shame of what we were going through and the stigma and the stereotype, mm-hmm. but, but out of all of them, the relief was really hard hitting. It was really hard hitting. Because it was, it was over and it was just, was, there's nothing else to the, the suffering is over. Right? Yeah, exactly that. Um, yeah, it was really tough. And I, and I suppose maybe a big part of my advocacy work and my campaigning is because of that guilt that I feel. So I feel like I couldn't help him when he was alive. And I feel like this is something that I can do in his memory and his legacy. And there were so many cruel things people said about him, you know, he did it to himself. He only had himself to blame. It was self-inflicted. And there was a lot of anger there within. I had a lot of anger at those people, even though I'd said those things, I was really angry. And at the beginning, my advocacy was very passive aggressive, if I'm honest. I was very passive aggressive. 
sort of get, telling the people that were angry or telling the people that were blaming the the alcoholic like yeah hey, this is an illness that kind of like yeah i would and i'd i i would have great yeah. i'd almost feel really smug when i turn around to them and say oh well does that because i'd have loads of people say to me oh um your dad didn't deserve nhs treatment for the national health service we get in the uk for free he didn't deserve that treatment wow. and i would That's say terrible. i turned around and would say things like oh so does that same concept apply to smokers does it apply to obesity does it apply to mm. um, heart disease because we eat you're eating the wrong foods or type 2 diabetes or and yeah and i would say it in such a passive aggressive way and it went until one day my husband said to me you know your work would have a lot more um power behind it and a lot more following if you was more empathetic and understanding about how you delivered the message mm. i went well, what do you mean by that and he said you you know <laughs> you're a, you're a little bit you're coming across as a bit angry <laughs> you were you were um, angry right like the, <laughs> i was angry a bit angry you were very I was angry. angry with other people yeah. and i was angry with myself and I thought, yeah. you know what, you're right, actually, because I used to think like that. And you only know what you know. Mm. We're not empowered or equipped with that education to understand addiction. Mm. Um, and it's not our fault. We don't understand it. People still don't understand it who aren't in that world. So the only way we're going to make a difference and change things is by educating people, right? Like educating mm. people on and I knew that if I was going to do that, I needed to do it in such an honest way. And sometimes that meant throwing myself out there and putting myself in a really vulnerable situation, admitting to things that I said and did. If, if I want to raise awareness around this, I have to say, I did that too. I said those stuff. And um, this is why we shouldn't stigmatize it. Um Tell me about that advocacy uh, journey, how it began. I mean, you did the TED Talk. How, how long after your father's passing did you do that TED Talk? So I did it. So my dad died in 2017 and I did the TED Talk in 2021. Um, okay. And I, and in that period of time before, had you done other advocacy work? or how did Yeah, that so work? I set up a charity, um, but I didn't actually do it for addiction. Because if I'm being really honest, I didn't really feel that comfortable talking about it. It weren't until a couple, uh, three years after my dad died that I felt, okay, now I'm going to talk about it. Um, I was mm -hmm. actually embarrassed to talk about it. So I would tell people that my dad had a heart attack or he had mm. um, mental health. So the people that kind of knew, I, I wouldn't say alcohol addiction, I would say he had mental illness. Um, and it was a friend of mine who I was speaking to one day and I was telling her this, you know, my stigma killed my dad and the stigma has a massive part to blame. Like, like stigma prevents people from admitting that they have a mental illness, which then makes them use substances. And then there's another stigma attached to it. And if we weren't so, if we didn't stigmatize things so much and stereotype and discriminate, then more people would feel empowered to ask for help. And she was really drawn into that. And she was like, you've really opened up my mind. You should do a TED talk. And there was a local, our, our TEDx, our local TEDx event were putting out applications and she kept sending me this link. I was like, I'm not doing it. Who am I to do a TED talk? Like who, like who wants to hear my, like this from me? And I can't do this. And I spoke to my sisters and my mum and I got their support. 
and I put my pitch in, I put my story in. I said, this is my idea. This is the big, the big idea was what they call it, don't they? My big idea mm-hmm. is stigma kills my dad. And I pitched it to this panel and all of them pretty much cried. <laughs> and they uh-huh. were like, I never thought about it from that perspective. I've mm-hmm. stigmatized people in addiction. I didn't even look at it from what you're saying. You're so, you're so right. And I got selected mm-hmm. to be a TED, TEDx speaker and I delivered the talk. I, um, and it was kind of that moment where I, it was almost like my family's coming out moment. Like my dad was an alcoholic. This is how he really died. Like some people knew, mm. some family members knew about it. Some people maybe um, assumed it was the case. And then some people had absolutely no idea. Um, and I spoke about it. I posted about it on Instagram. It got a lot of attention and kind of went from there. I started advocating against the stigmas and it evolved. And then I met a whole different community of loved ones that are affected by um, a loved one's drinking. And I noticed or I, I recognized that the key to success in my account online was that I, share, and apparently this is what I'm told, I, I share it very authentically and very honestly. Mm, you do. You um, really do. And I never intended to like make an account out of it. I never, if if I'm honest, when I started writing, it was really therapeutic for me. Um, Mm. And I learned a lot about myself writing, but yeah, it was this level of authenticity that comes along with it. And the fact that I am, I, I, I do admit to the horrible things that I said and did. I do admit to the things that I called him and, the things that I thought, and you know what? He weren't an easy person to live with. He, he was difficult. No. He was hard work. I did hate him at times. Um, it was very, very hard. It, it's hard being that loved one, watching somebody go through that. And it was hard for him. But I do strongly believe that a, the stigma attached to it played a significant part in us not asking for help. Mm. Um, mm. So... That's how it's just, and it, it's evolved. I've set up a podcast. Um, it's called Sarah and Amy, a friend of mine who her dad, hers and my, my dad, they died a couple of years apart, but they have the same name. And they're wow. the same age as well when they died. And he and her father died yeah, of alcoholism yeah. as well? So we, we wow. both, it, the podcast is called Sarah and Amy, the Children of Alcoholics podcast, really like really simple really original but we we literally just talk to people that are affected by it because like i was saying earlier on our experiences are so different and they're like we have all of these feelings and these emotions and it's okay like we Mm. i've spoken to people that don't have any empathy for their loved one um Mm. and that's okay because it's really difficult when you're in that relationship or you're the the child or you're the parent or you're the sister or the brother or the friend and and sometimes it is difficult to have empathy for something and you Mm. don't understand it properly or you know they might even be being really horrible and really mean when they're drunk um and then there's the people that do want to walk away but feel guilty for it or there's the people that do want to just protect them so much and wrap them up and protect them from the stigma and it there's so many different emotions that come with it they're all valid they're all valid emotions mm. and no, no experience is the same. But 
But despite all of that, our mannerisms, our personality traits and our feelings are all very similar. Um, Interesting. What do you mean by mannerisms? So, for instance, a lot of children of alcoholics um, are, um, me, for instance, I'm very control freak. So Mm, we try to mm. control situations. And yeah. because that's what we've tried to do our entire lives, we try to control situations, control, make sure people don't find out, make sure they don't misbehave at an event. We're on high yeah. alert all the time. So a lot of loved ones are constantly treading on eggshells and they can read moods instantly. We can read, mm-hmm. I can read an atmosphere in a room and read somebody's mood so quickly my husband Mm, mm. like you you're some kind of witch like how do you pick up on this (laughs) but i i just know because you had to your entire childhood you had to pick up on moods for your own safety right you were trained to be hyper alert of survival mechanism for sure yeah um and there's other like there's like um what else do we so we've got um trying to fix fix things for instance always trying to fix things Mm. and but um, yeah, there's different personality types. Um, there's a charity in the UK called NACOA. They're called the National Association mm-hmm. for Children of Alcoholics. And they have subtypes. And they list, uh, I've forgotten the name of, I'm so overwhelmed, I've, I've forgotten the name of the, um, the scientist or the professor that wrote it, but there are subtypes of children of alcoholics. Um, and I come under the category as the hero child. So it's the child that, over excelled in everything to take the attention away from anything being wrong in the family and so i used Mm. to think if i do well and i'm sensible and i don't misbehave and i don't go and do any of that normal teenage stuff then and i'm a respectable young young teenager then people won't judge us they'll think that oh they're fine nothing's wrong with them and if I do that, then maybe one day I can do really well in my career and help my dad. And maybe I'll have the money mm-hmm. to get him the support that he needs. Um, and that was my mentality with it. And then I know other children that um, they're called the clowns, where they'll turn everything into a joke. Um, and you've got right. the scapegoat. Um, the one that will is usually blamed for the behavior. It's your fault. This sounds a lot like uh, this sounds a lot like family systems. Uh, it's like a psychology framework. Um, I wonder. I wonder if it's the same psychologist we're thinking of. Possibly. I have to get um, the name of it and send it to you. But it's really interesting, and, and and but it categorizes all these personality types, and it's so interesting because everybody that I've mm. spoken to, you can you can put them in a category. And mm-hmm. I know that's mm-hmm. not nice. It's not nice to categorize, but you can. I, I'm in this. I fall in this category. I have mannerisms and certain personality types attributed to living up with a, an alcoholic, um, growing up with an alcoholic parent. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that, me being that hero child, what they call it, you d- you're more prone to developing anxiety and OCD, which is mm. what I've got. <laughs> I, so, yeah, it makes sense. So <laughs> it, it sense. does. So when you learn about it like that and you understand it and you learn about how it affects you, it makes it a lot easier to move on. Okay, okay so mm. this is how I'm affected. This is why 
I understood myself a lot more and I could I could do something with that. And I've had so much therapy, so many different. I was going to ask that. I was going to ask whether that was a big part. Yeah, for you. huge. Yeah. And I couldn't have done it. With, I don't think I would have done it with um, if my dad hadn't died. Um, mm. And that's what I always say to people. And I and I, I say that, you know, I think if my dad knew that his death could have done this, and I think he would have died 10 times over. He loved us that much. And I know that. Oh, I know that he would have, oh um, I wouldn't, I dread to think where I'd be had my dad not died. Because you wouldn't have got, you wouldn't really have got No, help. I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have seen, yeah. I would have been so sucked in with the stigma and worrying about what people think. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gotten the help. Um, and I wouldn't, my mindset wouldn't have changed. I had such a fixed mindset. Um, so mm. I do dread to think what situation I would have been in. Um, and now, I mean, God, I've had so many different types of therapy and I invest in myself and I talk good, good. Um, and I feel my dad around me and everything that I do, I feel him around me. Mm. Um, I don't say that in a selfish way, you know, but it's the same for all of us. We, there's been a significant change in me and my sisters and my mum. And we have come out of it a lot more resilient and a lot stronger. Um mm. And I know that he'd be proud of that. But I think I feel like, and who knows, it might be guilt, but I feel this genuine need to want to educate people around it and talk about our experience so that other people can feel like they can ask for help. So I I believe in recovering out loud, and I think that's a family thing. I Mm -hmm. think recovery is a family um, process the alcoholic will go through recovery but so will their family and I feel like we've been on a huge recovery journey and I'm passionate about talking about it and sharing it and I'm so glad you are I'm so so (laughs) glad you are because it's an it's an it's an amazing story and it's an amazing tribute to um the pain and suffering that alcohol can cause for everyone involved and also a tribute to the the power of recovery and the power of what can happen when you have that mindset shift yeah. of you know what forget about what the stigma forget about what people are thinking i'm not doing well i need help like that's basically the attitude you had yeah. and i'm so glad that you you had that um i'm just conscious of the time but i do want to know what's next for you and where you see the this advocacy going right you have the podcast with amy do you have plans for anything else that you want to do in this space or how you want to better educate people and and decrease stigma um i would love to write a book with a collection not just about me i want to write a book with loads of um, collections of stories from other people that are Mm. affected by loved ones and and just mm-hmm. raise kind of that. There's so many amazing sobriety influences and there's so many amazing people in that in that community that are breaking down stigmas and like yourself, you're like delivering these podcasts, you're talking about it openly. There's not a lot of people out there talking about the effects on the loved ones. And I think there's a serious need for that. There's a demand for that. Yeah. Um, and Nicoa do an amazing job. Um, and there's some other charities in the UK that just do wonderful work, but there aren't enough people talking out loud about it. So I think my 
I, I started reducing the stigma and started with that intention to lower the stigma attached to alcohol addiction. But I think I've kind of entered a different territory now where it's normalizing the emotions that come with being that loved one and talking mm, about them in mm. a compassionate way and going easy on ourselves. We feel some difficult emotions. We've like, I've known people and I've said it before to my dad, wished my dad dead. And then you live with that guilt and you internalize mm. it. And until you speak to yeah. another person that, and you tell them and they go, Oh, thank God. I thought I was the only one that thought that. And I'm so relieved that I'm not mm. on my own. Um, and it's just so you talk to other children of alcoholics and other loved ones and it's really freeing and liberating. So I think more, mm. I'd love to release more resources for those people and, and it not doesn't just help them, but it helps those people that are in recovery and those people that are considering sobriety. Uh, I've spoken to so right. many alcoholics who have said to me, hearing your story is helping me to stay sober for my own children. Exactly. I, I don't, I don't exactly. want this for my kids and listening to your pain. I, I, I don't want that. Um, and that's not me emotionally blackmailing or emotionally tugging at people's heartstrings this is the reality of it the reality is your alcohol addiction affects the loved ones around you um yeah. it doesn't just yeah. affect you and it affects them in such a way where it's a it's a feeling of powerlessness and frustration like you've never felt before and it is literally like watching somebody kill themselves and you can't do anything about it mm. Uh, mm. you can't you can't do anything so i think there's in the UK, there are one in five children affected by parents drinking. Just two wow. and a half million that we know of. The government has cut wow. the funding to support those children. So I think there's a lot of campaign work that needs to be done to reinstate mm. that and raise awareness around just how many kids are affected. And when I say kids, I mean, that's what I mean, young children that's not mm. that's not including the adults that are affected by parents drinking that's just there's two and a half million children in the uk that are affected mm. um and they've got nowhere to go they've got nowhere to talk no one to talk to no one to tell and as a child you worry that the local authority will get involved or take you away from the parents you can't say anything you have to protect them so i suppose mm. i'd love to do more work around creating more resources more understanding, more awareness, um, and at the same time, breaking down those stigmas and just having honest, upfront conversations like we've had tonight about what it's like, like the reality of it, not brush it under the carpet and not talk about it because it's a difficult conversation to have. And it, this is reality. This is what happens. And I think it's so important that we share it because I used to think I was alone. I used to think I was the only mm. one, me and my sisters and my mum were the only ones that understood what it was like. But we weren't. There were millions of other families mm. hiding a secret. Suffering yeah. in silence. Everyone feeling like they Absolutely. were the only ones. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Oh, you, you, you mentioned before this feeling of like that maybe guilt is one of the motivators. And I just, I hope that that, I hope that you let go of that and that that doesn't obstruct you at all in the mission that you have, because 
you're doing amazing work, Thanks, Sarah, baby. and you have absolutely, <laughs> absolutely nothing to to feel guilty for. But I know that it's it's easier said than done to let go of those some of those feelings. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited. I'm excited for your book to come out. I'm excited for you to do more stuff in this in this space. Um, and just, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing so vulnerably and so genuinely about that entire experience. I'm really. I'm really blown away. Like it, I, I knew this was a good idea, but I didn't know it was going to be this great oh, of, a, of an episode. <laughs> so it's long overdue that I have a, a child of a alcoholic uh, on the show. So thank you so much for, for oh, being that person. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of The Addictive Pod. If you haven't already, please be sure to like and follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you enjoyed hearing Sarah's story and you want to connect with her, her Instagram is at Sarah underscore Drage. I'm going to put a link for that in the description. You can find her podcast on the link. You can also find the TEDx talk that she did and a couple other cool um, resources. My Instagram is at Addictive Podcast. You can follow me there for updates and send me a message if you have any feedback about today's episode. That's all for me this week. Until next, next Monday, remember, we recover together.